welcome to another sermon podcast from Valley Forth Church. We are a church in Spokane Valley, Washington, and are dedicated to the mission of making, teaching, and sending disciples to the glory of God. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on Apple iTunes, Sermon Audio, or wherever you find your podcasts. Also, check out our YouTube channel for additional content at youtube.com slash Church. Now, here is a message from Pastor Joe Hirsch. We continue in our verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of Luke and through the trials of Jesus. And we come now to the, to the last of the six, three Jewish trials and three Roman or secular trials, where they come to the last hearing before Pilate. And a story of great tragedy, but of God's plan. We're now in Luke 23. I'll pick it up at verse 13, and we'll take it through verse 25. So let us hear the word of God. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people. And he said to them, you brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, Nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. But they all cried out together, Away with this man, and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus. But they kept shouting, Crucify! Crucify him! A third time he said to them, Why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who'd been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. This is God's eternal word. May it speak and power to our hearts this day. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Well, in this day of media overload. You've probably uh, been able to hear a lot about criminal stories. It's kind of become an art form in our media, unfortunately. But the news covers all kinds of trials, and uh, our city news does too. I want to ask you a hypothetical question. What would you think if you were watching Creme 2 News tomorrow night, and you saw the following story A well-known man here in Spokane, a man who not only had a spotless reputation, but who was also known for doing a tremendous amount of good in the city for a lot of people, was suddenly accused of a crime that carried the death penalty. He was tried here in our city. But in the morning he was tried, the news reported that he was not allowed an attorney. And in fact, No witnesses were called who could witness to his crime. 
No evidence was presented that showed he was guilty of this crime. But a large mob of people from our city had gathered outside the courthouse downtown and surrounded the building and were chanting for his conviction over and over again. Convict him, convict him, convict him. The news report tells you that the judge sees through the fact that there's no evidence and no witnesses and no attorney, and he pronounces this man not guilty. Not, not just once, but his gavel comes down three separate times over the hearing process. And three separate times he says, I find no guilt in this man. But every time he does that, the mob's voices grow louder and the numbers grow and the TV cameras pan over more and more angry people and they keep shouting out, convict him, convict him, convict him through the windows of the downtown courthouse. And then suddenly you see the judge shrug his shoulders and say, okay, okay, I'll execute him. What would you think of that moment? What would run through your mind about what had just happened? And what would you call that? Well, I know what I would call it. I'd call it broken justice. A complete and utter farce. The most unjust moment you could imagine. Well, that's essentially what happened to Jesus in downtown Jerusalem in the story that we're going to see come to its close today. People that have looked at the trials of Jesus over the stretch of history, even secularists have said that according to the accounts in history, Jesus without question experienced history's greatest injustice, the most unjust trial of all time. Now, the one who brings us the account we're going through today is one of the clearest writers in ancient times. He is regarded both by believers and secularists as one of the tr most trustworthy ancient historians in Roman times, and he is Luke, the physician who became a Christian and a follower of, of Jesus and a companion of Paul. His historical works are held at a high level of reliability. He wrote the book of Acts, the great history of the beginning of the church, and he wrote this gospel about the same time. He wrote it to the Roman society that was beginning to consider who Jesus was. He wrote it about 20 years after the life of Christ and the death and resurrection as the church was spreading through the empire. And some commentators believe that he wrote it to convince skeptical Roman minds about the, the veracity of the life of Jesus and the innocence of Jesus as God's son. It's interesting, uh, commentators show that he actually used terms from the Roman courtroom in this narrative that we're studying today. Terms that were lifted right out of the legal pages of Roman courts to show his detailed knowledge. He had interviewed and, and gone through uh, the, the events of that day over and over with those that knew about them, apparently. It's been suggested that his goal was to convince readers who were not yet believers that a myth that was going through the empire about Jesus was false. The myth was that Jesus was crucified because he was just another rabble-rousing insurrectionist in Judea. 
And there had been many of them, Jewish young men who led rebellions against the hard rule of Rome in Judea. There had been many before Christ. There would be some after Christ up until AD 70 when Rome leveled the place in response to the latest insurrection. And there was a rumor going around that this Jesus that they were talking about was just another failed revolutionary and he was crucified for that. Luke, it's thought, wrote this portion of the gospel and went through the de- in detail the trials of Jesus to show that that was a myth. Jesus was completely innocent. In fact, he endured the most unjust set of trials in Roman memory. He wanted to do that so that the non-believers would consider that the message about Jesus of Nazareth was worth hearing, that he not only was an innocent man crucified, uh, crucified unjustly, but that he rose again, and this gospel message was worth hearing. And then he was writing to the new believers in the Roman Empire that this was a gospel worth believing and suffering for, because he wants to show that it was not only an unjust moment over an innocent man, but that it was still all under the hand of Almighty God. Years later, another writer to the believers who were reading the epistle to the Hebrews would put it this way in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 26 of that epistle. For it was indeed fitting that we, believers, should have such a high priest, Jesus, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. What was the the great plan behind this injustice? I've shared it with you already in the previous two messages, that though people had a corrupt plan to get rid of Jesus, God had an overarching plan that used it all to show that his son was innocent all the way to the cross. Hebrews 7.26 says it's indeed fitting. What does that mean? It means that if we're going to have someone who would sacrifice himself for our sins, he would need to be a spotless high priest who would plead for us. He would need to be holy, the verse says. That's how God the Father would see him. And innocent, and that word talks about how humanity sees him. Jesus was proven to be both in his trials and in his crucifixion, holy in the eyes of God and innocent in the eyes of anyone who looked at the facts. And so again, I bring before you the fact that though we are reading about the worst injustice in history, God's great plan was over all of it. Now, as I've said, there were six trials altogether. When we went through chapter 22 of Luke, we studied the three false Jewish trials, bogus, conducted against the laws, and that, that essentially came up with nothing to convict Jesus upon. Then they sent it to, to Pilate, and we have three secular trials. Now, we've studied two of those already, one trial before Pilate and one trial before Herod. Now the narrative comes back to the third and last, which is again another final hearing before Pilate, and that's chapter 23, verses 13 to 25. That's where we're focusing today. And I simply want to do just like I've done with the others to observe the text, to take a look at what unfolds here and just walk you through it step by step. I see five things. Number one, it begins with what I would call the troubling background to this third and final trial, beginning at verse 13 and going through verse 15, when Pilate calls everybody back outside the courtyard of his palace after Jesus had been taken to Herod and then returned. So let me give you 
a chance to remember the run-up to this if you haven't been with us, and we've been talking about it over several weeks. Like I said, six trials. Three bogus Jewish trials carried on, to, carried on under the cover of darkness to ram uh, verdicts through against Jesus. And once they concluded that in their minds he was guilty of blasphemy, they wanted to put him to death, but under Roman law, they did not have the freedom to put Christ to death. And so they moved to take Jesus to Pilate and engineer a death penalty and get a death penalty out of Pontius Pilate, the governor, the Roman governor of Judea, who was in Jerusalem that week for Passover. He was the ultimate authority. So they go, and on the way, they conspire together, especially the leaders, the chief priests, and and the the scribes to invent some charges against Jesus that would alarm Pilate. Charges like Jesus saying you shouldn't pay your taxes to Rome or charges like Jesus wanted to lead an insurrection and make himself king in place of the Roman rulership. All of these were false, but they invented the charges. They gathered outside Pilate's Pilate's, uh, palace and they began to, to call him out and bring these charges. That's where chapter 23 began in verse 1 when they began to come around the palace and gather outside the courthouse, if you will. They brought these false charges. Pilate was indeed alarmed, especially about the one that said Jesus wanted to make himself a king. And so Pilate goes and and he privately interviews Jesus. That's chapter 23, verse 3, about whether he is the king. Jesus shows him that he's not, he has no intention of being a political usurper, but he is a king of truth. He's a king of God's kingdom that's moving among hearts and that will soon move in history. But Pilate sees no threat in Jesus, and so he comes back to the balcony in verse 4, and he says to the chief priests in the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. That's verse 4. And that's the first time the gavel comes down in these proceedings, and the judge basically says, I find no guilt in this man. So, bam, not guilty verdict, verse 1. That's the first one. And that really ends the first trial. Legally, it should have ended there. But the backlash from the people, verse 5, they were urgent, saying he stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. And Pilate is taken aback by the energy outside this courtroom, his, his courtroom window, and he, he's shocked by the people. He hears them talk about Jesus being from Galilee, and a light comes on in his politician's mind. Oh, I have a way out of this. I'll send Jesus over to Herod, who is the appointed half-Jewish ruler of Galilee. He's in a lower court than mine, but he has more immediate jurisdiction. I'll dump this on Herod and get out of this predicament. I don't want these people angry at me. So he sends Jesus to Herod. We studied that last time. Herod, by this time, is a burned-out, addled, foolish ruler who has no spiritual interest in Jesus any longer and who simply had heard about Christ's miracles, and Herod wanted to see Jesus perform some miracles in his throne room as a way of entertainment, to turn Jesus into a jester. Jesus receives him with silence. Herod, in anger, reacts and mocks Jesus. His soldiers mock him. They dress him in a king's robe, blindingly white, and send him all the way back across the city to Pilate, meaning they found no guilt in him either. So that was trial two. Remember I said there's three. Trial one ended in verse four with with 
Pilate basically saying, I've interviewed him. There's there's no guilt in this man. He sends him to Herod because the crowd is still angry. Herod sends him back. That's the end of trial number two. And that sets the stage for what we now begin to read in verse 13. Pilate then, after what? Verse 12 says, after Herod had sent Jesus back, Jesus is brought in chains back into Pilate's hearing room inside his palace. Pilate then called together, verse 13, the chief priests and the rulers and the people. In other words, he reconvened court. It had gone into a recess while Jesus was sent over to a lower court to be heard by Herod. That lower court hadn't decided anything. It said that we didn't, we don't find anything wrong with him either. They sent him back in mockery. So now Pilate has this on his hands again. He's tried to acquit Jesus first. That didn't work. He hoped Herod would do it. That didn't quite work. Now that he's got to reconvene everything, he reconvenes everything. He brings the accusers back outside and the onlookers. So the crowd has grown since this all began to start. By the way, this is all happening early on Good Friday morning, if you will, right around six in the morning. He reconvenes court. And then, like any faithful judge would do, he reviews the charges. Verse 14, he said to them, you brought to me this man as one who was misleading the people. That was your charge. Then he reviews the process that he followed. That's the next part of the verse. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. I tried him. Now, it's interesting, this is where Luke begins to use language that shows he had a knowledge of the culture and of the legal system. When when Luke uses the word, the Greek word examined, anakrino is the Greek word. It meant to separate or sift fact from falsehood. It meant to sift something up and down. Here's how one Greek authority described anakrino. It meant to examine accurately or carefully re-examine something or someone to make careful and exact research as in a legal process, interrogating or cross-examining someone. That's what Pilate had done with Jesus earlier. Uh, and, And John chapter 19, I believe, went through that for us. He goes on, thus anacrino, used here by Luke to say Pilate examined him, is a fitting verb in this case, for it was often used in secular Greek to describe the interrogation of a prisoner in a judicial examination before a final verdict was rendered. So there you see how Luke is trying to make his point. Jesus Christ was thoroughly examined by a high official in the, in the greatest legal system in their society, the Roman legal system. He even used the language. Pilate said, I put him through the, the ringer. I examined him legally. And I found him not guilty. I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. So he, he, nothing held up. Then he says, and I also would remind you that this was affirmed by a lower court. Verse 15, neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. So he reconvenes everybody. He reviews the charges as a good judge would. He reviews his process as a good judge would. He shows that that his verdict was even affirmed by a lower court, and he completely exonerates Jesus legally, and that's verse 15. Neither did Herod. He sent him back to us. Look. He's getting their attention. Nothing deserving death has been done by him. And again, Luke goes into great specifics here. Nothing, the word for nothing, udes in the Greek, is literally not one single thing. 
He wasn't just doing a flyby on this. He wasn't just mailing this in. He said, I went over every specific and I found literally not one single thing that showed that he has done something deserving of death, deserving, worthy, axios in the Greek. That meant to weigh something or someone in the balances. So Pilate is basically saying in the words of Luke here that I took your accusations against this man and then I examined the man and it's as though I put your accusations on one side of the scale and I put this man Jesus on the other and the scale didn't move. He's not guilty. That's how clear this was. Now Pilate at that point was making a pronouncement as a judge and that's when the gavel came down the second time. Not guilty. Times two. Now, at that point, I'm reading into it, but I'm thinking about what I've learned about this process and Pilate's personality. And it's my guess then that he was holding his breath that this justice that he was finding was going to be enough. But as we'll find out through the rest of the story, and you can see, we can read ahead to verse 18. He was holding his breath in vain because verse 18 says they all cried out together away with this man. They were already headed into a mindset of conviction and they couldn't have cared less what the facts were or what justice said. And that's why I begin by calling this a troubling background to the rest of the trial. That's the troubling part. Pilate actually is stepping forth and in the small circle of his integrity, which was a small circle, he was at least trying to do at the outset the right thing. But the troubling part of all of this is the people. The leaders and the people wouldn't hear it. They had turned a corner. Law didn't matter. Listen, hatred of Jesus mattered. They weren't interested in evidence. They weren't interested in witnesses. They weren't interested in in what the law concluded about Jesus. They had come to a point of hatred predicted by Jesus, fulfilling Psalm 69, when Jesus said, all of this is going to have to happen this day. They will hate me without a cause because he would be hated by all men as proof that he was innocent and a worthy savior. So all of this had to happen, but It's just shocking to me how low people can fall. And I'll talk about this a couple of times in this message. People think Pilate is the one that we really should criticize the most in this passage. And he does bear blame. But there's another group of people whose sin is as deep or deeper. And that's the people that cry out for the blood of Jesus. They have fallen to a low point. They don't care about justice. In fact, here they're turning the tables of justice against Jesus. It's been pointed out by many Bible scholars who've studied these trials, and I've mentioned it to you before, that Jesus might have been on trial officially, but all these people were on on trial in actuality. And they were condemning themselves moment by moment. The Bible does tell us that in that day, they turned the tables of justice against Jesus, and they gained an unjust verdict. They won. But the Bible also says that unless they have repented and turned and trusted in Jesus Christ, 
They've all tasted physical death. And they are all now in the waiting room, waiting to face their ultimate trial. And Revelation 20 tells us that there will be a courtroom that they will walk into. C.S. Lewis years ago wrote a book to, to, to defend Christianity called God in the Dock. The, the Dock was the old English word for the defense table. And he talked about the fact that our society always wants to try Jesus, to put him at a defense table, to attack him and to make him prove his worth as a savior. Well, I will tell you that one day the tables will be turned and the Bible says that those who put God at the defense table today will one day be at a defense table on their own and there will be no, no time left. They will have to stand for their words against Jesus in this life as they enter the next. I will tell you right now, my friend, don't take that chance. Many people who have problems with Christianity and with Christ really don't have problems with the facts. They have a hatred to Jesus. That's the depraved heart. And if you're in that place today, here in this room or watching me, understand the risk you, you run. You can put Jesus at the defense table in your life and just hate him for who he is, but understand that one day your life will be ended and you will be at a defense table and you will have no defense. Trust in Jesus Christ. Don't let your hatred blind you like these people did. While this troubling background is set forth (coughs) and it creates a tremendous amount of tension for Pilate, We go now to the second thing I observe in verse 16, and that is the vain attempt of Pilate. It says, he says, I will therefore punish and release him. Now, as I said, Pilate was holding his breath for justice, that they would accept the second of his two not guilty verdicts, and this would be over. But he knew deep in his heart, based on the way he was seeing that crowd, that they would resist. He knew that they'd already turned that corner and they wanted blood. So he offers them a handout. He says, I will therefore punish him and release him. Now he didn't have to do this because he just declared that Jesus was innocent. But he begins to corrupt his own process here and throw them a a little handout. Maybe that would satisfy their desire to see Jesus suffer. Now, punish here, many people think he's talking about scourging Jesus where he was tied to a post and his back was was whipped into ribbons before his crucifixion. No, scourging was only done after you were condemned and just before you were crucified. And it was the worst punishment short of crucifixion the Romans had. This is a different punishment. The word is different in the Greek, paiduo, and it it, it talked about a lighter degree of whipping that was like a, like a, a severe beating, but it, it didn't draw blood. And uh, it was used at times when a person was heading in the wrong direction. They were thinking about committing a crime, or you could see that they were, it was often even used to describe how a parent would discipline a, a, a teen or an adolescent or somebody that was going the wrong direction, and they'd, they'd kind of give them a whipping. Some of you familiar with this? In your background, none today, of course, you'd be jailed. But, but, you know, I mean, but a little bit of us have had a taste of this in life. It was, it was that kind of thing. And Dr. Kent Hughes, in his commentary on this, 
It writes this, under Roman law, a light beating was sometimes given along with the warning so the accused would watch his behavior more carefully in the future. Pilate here was trying to appease Christ's accusers, hoping that a lesser judicial act of punishment would quell their bloodlust. That's what he was trying to do. And then he said, well, we'll give them that light beating that we often give for people that are going in the wrong direction, nothing serious, but enough to get his attention, and then release him. So the question comes, why was Pilate starting to pander to them all of a sudden? He'd given two not guilty verdicts. He was the ruler of that sector through the might of Rome. And yet now it looks like he's bending to them a little bit. And why was Pilate pandering to this crowd, even though he was convinced Jesus was completely innocent? And the answer that most who have studied this text and of history have come to is because they had something on him. The Jewish rulers outside his window had something on Pilate. In fact, they had three things. You see, Pilate had only come into his rulership a handful of years before in A.D. 26. He'd come as the governor of Judea, and he had made a series of mistakes that had angered and alienated the Jewish people and their rulers. When he came into town on his very first day, He decided to impress the emperor, Tiberius Caesar, and so he put images of Tiberius Caesar on top of all the banners that the Romans came into town with, even though he knew that the Jews would think those were idols and violating the commandments of Moses, he did it anyway. He enraged the Jewish people and enraged the rulers. Not a good start, not a good first day. Word got back to Rome, they forced him to take him off. He tried it again a few years later by just putting the image on some shields that he put up in Herod's palace down the street. That didn't work out either. The Jews saw that. It's idolatry just the same. They protested in the streets. And then Pilate drew blood when he found out that there were some people that were guilty of insurrection, like Barabbas would be found guilty of, and they were Galileans, and his agents had found them going and worshiping in the temple during one of the feast days. Pilate sent his soldiers into the temple, and they executed those Galileans on the spot. Jesus talked about it. They mingled their blood with their sacrifices. That sent the Jewish people and the leaders over the top. And so they sent a word of complaint to the court of Tiberius Caesar about what Pilate had done. And Tiberius Caesar was angry about this. He didn't want any problems in an area that was already problems enough. And so he sent a message back to Tiberius Caesar, uh, from Tiberius Caesar's palace that says, Pilate, you're on probation. No more bad reports coming back from the Jews in Jerusalem. Now, all of this was known. And the Jewish leaders knew that they had leverage over Pilate. Now that's going to factor in a big way, in my opinion, about how all this turns out. So Pilate makes a vain attempt to try and placate them, but still carry out justice. Now we see the third thing, and it's the most disturbing part of the passage, and that is the evil demand of the people. And this begins at verse 18. They weren't having it. They didn't care about the second not guilty verdict. They didn't care about a light beating to kind of show Jesus the error of his ways. They didn't want him released. They were not having it. They didn't want a light beating. They wanted death. And so they say, away with this man. That's a translation for take him and execute him. And many have pointed out that just 
a week before they had welcomed him into Jerusalem, some of these same people in the crowd saying, Hosanna, welcome to the son of David. Now he's just this man. Their love of him was so superficial it collapsed. And then they make this startling demand and release to us Barabbas. Now who is this and how does this enter into the story? Well, the next verse tells us a little bit about who he is. Barabbas was a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection. The very thing they were falsely accusing Jesus of, this guy had actually started one in Jerusalem sometime before. And he started it and in the process murdered Romans. He was in prison and he was in there for capital offenses. What was a capital offense meaning in Rome? It meant if you led an insurrection or you murdered a Roman, you were automatically sentenced to crucifixion. So there he was waiting for this. Now, Luke doesn't give us the details, but Matthew does. And I want you to go to Matthew 27 for a moment, and we'll pick up Matthew's description of how this all developed. Now at the feast, the feast of Passover, this is Matthew 27, 15, the governor, Pilate, was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. I just described to you who he was. Now, Mark says that the crowd asked for Barabbas, and Pilate knew that he had Barabbas in custody. And so a lot of commentators looked at this and believe that the crowd might have asked for a Barabbas and Pilate saw that as a real opportunity. And Pilate offered them Barabbas. Verse 17, so when they had gathered, Matthew 25, Pilate said to them, whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? Now, why did this happen? Well, it says here in the next verse, for he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him. He was thinking mostly of the Jewish leaders that were behind all of this. The scribes and the priests were driving most of this. The people were just deceived and taken along, but he knew the scribes and the priests had envy driving their whole motive against Jesus because of his popularity and how he convicted them. And Pilate knew that just a few days before, most of the people out in the crowd had welcomed Jesus uh, into the city and called him the son of David and been raptured and raptured by his teaching and were, were, were swarming around him. And Pilate in his secular mind guessed that surely all of that wouldn't have dissipated over the last four days. Surely the crowd will win out over these corrupt leaders and they won't cross crucify on Friday the one they'd adored on Monday. So he takes a gamble and he thinks, obviously, if I give them a choice, these people can't be so corrupt and deceived and angry that they're going to choose Barabbas over Jesus. Who would even think of such a thing? So when he gathered them together, whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him. And so he played this card. Maybe this is the way to get Jesus out of crucifixion and myself off the hook. Well, we know that what happened was that as, as the crowd heard this, go to verse 20 of Matthew 27. Now the chief priests and the elders who were really behind it all persuaded the crowd, moved among them, 
to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. And the governor again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you, thinking for sure they would ask for Jesus and not Barabbas? And then he was stunned to hear, and they all said, Barabbas. Pilate must have been shocked to the core. He'd given them an obvious choice. Someone they they had adored in the streets. Someone who was influential and highly acclaimed because of his goodness. Someone in whom Pilate himself found nothing wrong. It was obvious who the good man was. That's the man who should have been released. And it was obvious who Barabbas was. The man who should have been on a cross. And they completely defy that moral logic. Now, as a Roman, he must have been shocked. But now we, as believers, we we look at all of this centuries later and what we know about our Lord, and it's even a deeper moral crime. That's why I said Pilate's at fault here, but the, 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 the chief priests in the crowd, deeper moral failure. They asked for a killer to be released instead of the gentle healer who had moved through their cities and their towns and comforted and healed thousands. They asked for a thief to be released, someone who would steal from them again instead of the one who broke bread for them on a hillside and met their every physical need. They asked for an insurrectionist. Our modern term for that, by the way, would be terrorist because that's how they did it to be released instead of the Prince of Peace. Stunning. You can go back to our text, Luke 23, and and see further basically how this played out. In Luke chapter 23, go back to our passage now. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus. They've asked for Barabbas. He can't believe it. And so he, 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 he comes back at them again, and he says, desiring to release Jesus. He, he said, no, you, 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 you should want Jesus. But they kept shouting, crucify, crucify him. This is vivid. Kept shouting in the Greek meant, meant, meant that they just kept going wave after wave, like you've seen crowds of protest with, with the words that keep coming out of the crowd. Maybe they even said it in unison, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him, crucify And they knew what they were asking because the Greek word that, again, Luke uses here is very significant. It was the word that meant nail him to a cross. That's literally what it meant. Staureo, nail to the cross. They were sailing, nail him. Just nail him. That's the depth to which they had fallen. That's why it was an evil demand. And you ask yourself, why do people get like this? How do people get like this? How can they go from adoration on a Monday to condemnation on a Friday? How can they be so darkened? And I don't have answers for that. We do know the text says that they were deceived by the leaders circulating in the crowd and amped up and told false truths. And and you know, people believe leaders. People are influenced. So I'm sure there was deception 
There was also disappointment. Many of them believed that Jesus was going to be an earthly Messiah and defeat the Roman authorities by nightfall of the first day he arrived in Jerusalem. And Jesus had done none of that. And so they had these earthly ambitions and all that was disappointed. And they were just angry over being misled. Maybe they were disappointed. And certainly depravity falls into place. The Bible tells us that there is no depth to what fallen human people can do. I don't know why it all happened. Maybe it was a combination of deception and disappointment and depravity. Again, people have looked at this passage and vilified the Jewish people as the chief agents of the crucifixion of Jesus, and I don't think that's a fair analysis. After all, Pilate had the ultimate authority. So Pilate's hand, and the scripture tells us many hands nailed his hands, not just Jewish hands. And what makes you think that you here today in your 21st century American identity would be any less susceptible to deception or disappointment or that you don't have the same level of potential depravity there was a hymn I read this week that one phrase out of it struck me. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. As dark as their behavior was, I know I could have been there myself. Because it went past logic just to the hatred of God. And the Bible says the sinful heart hates God. Well, this is followed by the fourth thing I see. Go back to our passage. Verse 23, they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. Pilate, again with his back against the palace wall. You can see that things were getting out of control at this point. We can see it. He certainly saw it. But in that moment, there was still one person who could have settled this thing. You've got to remember this. As virtually uncontrollable as the crowd was, there was still one person who could have settled this thing, who could have brought justice, and who could have freed the truly innocent man. And that was Pilate himself. Pilate still had authority. He was still the voice of Roman rule. And he had tried Jesus. He had examined Jesus. He twice pronounced Jesus not guilty. And he did hold the power to set him free and to bring justice. But he didn't. And for this, he rings in dishonor throughout history. Why did he pathetically collapse then? Remember I told you they had something on him? They had it, and he knew it. He knew that one more bad report back from these Jewish leaders from Jerusalem to Tiberius Caesar would mean the end of Pilate's rulership, the end of all of his political ambitions, the end of his lifestyle, the end of his reputation. He'd be exiled somewhere and be an afterthought. And he would not face that. 
fact, if you go back to Matthew 27, you can see it happen in real time. Matthew 27, that's Matthew's rendition of what we're reading here. And in verse 21, the governor again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? They said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, when what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? They shouted all the more, just like Luke tells us. They kept going and leaning on him. Let him be crucified. So look at verse 24. Very important. When Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, that's his collapse. He couldn't handle a riot in Jerusalem. He couldn't handle a report of that getting back to Tiberius Caesar. So he abandons justice and he goes for self-interest. He abandons justice and goes for self-interest. And he does this little theatrical thing on the balcony. He calls for a basin of water. They put it on the ledge so everybody can see him down below. And he washed his hands before the crowd saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. Nice attempt. But not true. He was not innocent of the blood of Jesus. He was the last one holding the sword of justice that could have intervened. But they had him. Lenski, the Bible commentator, said that this was all decided long ago because the Jews had taken Pilate's measure years before. They knew what he treasured. They knew what he feared. And Dr. Lenski writes... All they knew was that one more push was all it would take and he would tip right over. That's exactly what happened. Go back to our passage. You can see it in verse 23. But they were urgent. The Greek word there means to lean hard on somebody. Urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified and their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted notice. Even though he had, for a third time in Matthew, pronounced him not guilty and then washed his hands. That's the way he showed his third not guilty verdict. says, in my opinion, he's not guilty. Well, your opinion is the only one that counts. But he abandoned it. So really, what you'd have in the trial of Jesus, he never got an official verdict from the judge. What happened with Jesus, this was not a verdict, but it was a surrender to a mob. And and our text tells us that their voices prevailed and Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He gave Jesus over to him. The ultimate in cowardice. Not a verdict, but a surrender to a mob. This was a great example in the Bible of human depravity in the crowd and human disappointment in a leader. You look at this and say, man, this is a dark story. Yeah, but I told you earlier that God's plan is over all of it. A few months later, after Jesus had risen, Peter was preaching. And in Acts chapter 3, some of the same people from the same crowd were gathered in the temple And we're hearing Peter preach about the resurrected Jesus. And Peter actually gives these people another chance. Isn't that a stunning thing? He gives them a chance. 
now that Jesus has risen from the dead, to understand what they did and repent of their sin. It's a stunning statement, but in the middle of it, he shows us that God was in control even of this. In Acts chapter 3, verse 13, Peter's preaching, some of the same priests might have been in the back row. Some of the same people that called crucify him might have been in the front row. And he says, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, our God as a Jewish nation, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus. What did he do? He glorified himself in the life of Jesus because he was totally innocent. He was the pure son of God and he glorified his son by raising him out of the tomb. Boom, into glory and exaltation. The father was in all of this. This Jesus whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate. He's talking right to those people that have been in that crowd when he, Pilate, had decided to release him. This shows exactly what the narrative is that I've just described. Pilate said three times, not guilty, I want to release him. In fact, the word release him is repeated 17 times in all four of the gospel descriptions of this event. That's how much Pilate wanted to see Jesus released. But you, he says, Jesus, you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him, but you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, Barabbas. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. Peter is saying, listen, this was the deepest sin in your lives but God was over it. He brought his son through it. He raised him from the dead. And you have a chance now to repent and be restored. Look at verse 19. After convicting them like that, then Peter looks at them and he says, repent therefore and turn again that your sins may be blotted out. What grace The times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Yes, we're seeing today in this chapter the darkest description of humanity in the Gospels. People don't fall much lower than this, folks. And yet here, just months later, our wonderful Lord brings them the brightest opportunity of grace. Can you outsend God's desire to bring grace to you? Answer, no. All you can do is run out of time to repent. All you can do is run out of time to answer the call of God's forgiveness. This is all divinely planned. And in fact, in the midst of this dark landscape of ugly humanity, there is finally a precious portrait of the gospel right in here. I want you to see it as we close. Go back to chapter 23 of Luke. Indeed, one of the darkest days recorded in Scripture ends, and this is how Luke summarizes how that whole set of trials ended. Verse 25, you can almost read the stunned thinking in Luke's mind. He, Pilate, released the man who'd been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder. Who was that? Barabbas, for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. That's how it ends. Like I said, if you've ever wanted to see human beings at their worst, that's a pretty good picture of it. It's like a landscape of fallenness. But in this dark landscape, there is hidden a precious little portrait. Because as Jesus was led 
from Pilate's palace down below into a cell that you can still visit today, I'm told, to have a crown of thorns rammed down on his head, to be mocked by the soldiers, then to be tied to a post and scourged to within an inch of his life. Somebody else was being let out of a cell just down the hall. Barabbas. Jesus led into a cell to be beaten and sent to the cross. Somebody else led out of a cell to unexpected freedom. And later that morning, by 9 a.m., as Jesus would carry a cross up to a hill to die that morning, he would carry a cross that had been meant for somebody else. That someone else was Barabbas. I close by telling you that Bible teachers over the years maybe over the centuries, have seen a gospel portrait, if you will, some parallels in the story of Barabbas and you and I. He stands on the biblical page, as one author said, as a picture of sinners who do trust in Christ. Note four parallels. Number one, Barabbas deserved to die, didn't he? He had led an insurrection. He had murdered Romans. He'd violated the law, and he absolutely deserved to die. In fact, he'd probably already been convicted. Now, if he'd been executed, no one would have questioned it. He should have been on a cross. As such, could Barabbas represent every person who's ever violated God's law? Oh, yeah. Because we all stand guilty as charged before God's bar of justice, the Bible says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. There it is. You've already been tried by God's justice. And that the wages of sin is death. That's where you're headed. Like Barabbas, we deserve God's sentence of death. So there's the first parallel that's been noted. Secondly, Barabbas did nothing to earn his pardon. He was pardoned, but he did nothing to earn it. He hadn't been working on trying to get out of prison and for good behavior, and it just happened to work out that day. No. He hadn't pleaded before Pilate in an early morning hearing that he'd promised to never do it again if he was let out, gave up the insurrection. No. Nothing he could do earned his pardon. All he had to do was when they walked down the hallway of the cell block, opened his cell up and said, you've been pardoned. All he had to do was say, okay. That's exactly how God's salvation is offered to every sinner. If you think you deserve it, or there's something you can do for him to gain it, or if there's something you need to change about your past in order to qualify for it, or if there's some promise you can make about your future so that you can, you can earn your way in, you don't understand the fact that human merit does nothing. Salvation is by grace completely. Your pardon was earned by somebody else. Thirdly, Jesus did die in Barabbas' place. Isn't that true? In the sense that it might have been literally true. Uh, scholars have wondered about the fact Barabbas was there for insurrection and murder. That was definitely a crucifiable offense. That's the only place he was going to end up was on a cross. The two thieves next to Jesus, Barabbas was a thief too. Some have theorized that there were three crosses made in Jerusalem that morning. There were two thieves on either side of Jesus, and Jesus may have been on the cross that had originally been reserved for the greatest thief among the three, Barabbas himself. 
We don't know. But it is true, according to this narrative, that Barabbas received a pardon and somebody else died instead of him. Right? Jesus did. In fact, if, if, if Barabbas had maybe followed the crowd to, 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 to Calvary's Hill later that morning in his newfound freedom, wanting to know what was going on, he could have watched Jesus nailed to the cross he should have been on, and he might have thought, that should have been me. Those nails should have gone through my wrists, my ankles. We don't know. But Jesus did die in his place, and that's what the Bible says about you. We deserve to die in our sins, for our sins, but Jesus, the innocent Lamb of God, took our place on the cross as our substitute. He said, I came to give my life as a ransom for many. He bore the wrath of God that should have fallen on you and me, and he satisfied the penalty. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, in our place is the literal Greek, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. <laughs> what a beautiful portrait. Here's the last thing. Jesus' death did result in Barabbas' life and freedom. Jesus was condemned and he died and Barabbas got set free. His whole future was changed and that's what happens when you find Jesus Christ. It's been pointed out, some of the older manuscripts say that Barabbas' name meant son of the father. We don't know about where that came from. It's, a, it's the most generic of names. When they named him, he says, well, just son of his father. He must not have been cared much about. But the irony is that people have pointed out that Jesus was the son of the father. Barabbas was a guilty, ugly, sinful son of his sinful father. Barabbas was doing what he was born into, was born a sinner, as was said in our earlier prayer. Jesus the Son of the Father, the Father, came from heaven and suffered and died so that a human son of a father could live and go free. John 20, 31, Oh, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Well, Barabbas did. You may disagree, but I see there a beautiful portrait of what it means to come out of depravity to freedom. That's what you need today, my friend. Now, we don't know if Barabbas ever made a true decision. We know he walked free that day out of the cell block. That much we can be sure of. And he must have eventually learned the truth about Jesus, the one who suffered in his place. That would be the first question he would ask. Maybe even the guard told him this Jesus of Nazareth, he's going to be crucified in your place. Get out of here. Certainly throughout his life, he must have wanted to know more about this. Certainly whenever he heard the name of Jesus, thoughts would go through his mind. Who knows, maybe if he stayed in Jerusalem long enough, he might have even been in the back of the crowd Months later, when Peter preached that message and said, even now, you can repent and be restored and set free. Did he hear it? Did he do it? I don't know, but I'll tell you right now, you're hearing it. And if you know your heart is not his, 
you can give your heart to Him today. Don't wait till you've run out of time.